This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're often confronted with conflicting claims regarding the growth of the LDS Church. Some like to portray it as the fastest growing denomination in the world, while others maintain that church growth is stagnating or even that the number of active members is decreasing. Compounding the difficulty in analyzing this question is the fact that the LDS Church, unlike most religious organizations, counts everyone who has ever been baptized as a member, unless of course they have been excommunicated or specifically requested that their names be removed from the membership records. Until recently, the Deseret News published a church almanac that contained a great deal of information about church growth but the news has announced that it will no longer be publishing the almanac. Fortunately, our guests in this podcast, David Stewart and Matt Martinich, have stepped into that breach. David and Matt are the recognized experts today on church growth, and I think you'll find their presentation fascinating. Some of the questions I've had are these. Where are we growing? Where are we stagnating? How are we doing with member retention? Is Africa the new Latin America? Are other churches doing better in Africa than we are? Why do Seventh-day Adventists have nearly a million and a half members in India, while we have less than 10,000? If you have questions about church growth, I think you'll like this podcast. I'm Morris Thurston, a member of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation, publishers of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and the sponsor of this podcast. The presentation was originally delivered to the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California on April 11, 2014. The next voice you hear will be my wife, Dawn Thurston, as she introduces our speakers. So let's get to our speakers tonight. Matt and David here, who have collaborated for many years on this worthwhile project. This, I think it's a 1,900-page, two-volume set. And they just met face-to-face for the first time about two hours ago. <laughs> it's really quite incredible how we can collaborate nowadays. Uh, David Stewart is an orthopedic surgeon. He lives in Las Vegas, and for the last few years, he's been named one of the top do- uh, doctors there in Las Vegas. He served a mission to St. Petersburg, Russia, and is, influent in, is fluent in several languages. He's conducted research and published papers on culture, church growth, and mission outreach in over 35 countries. He's the author of Law of the Harvest, Practical Principles of Effective Missionary Work, which he published, was it 2007? about that, and he brought a copy for each of you here for free, so you can take take this home. Isn't that great? We're lucky. This is great tonight. In addition, he and Matt, of course, are the co-authors of of the book, Reaching, Reaching the Nation. He's also the author of numerous articles, and their research examined the church in every sovereign country with over 10,000 inhabitants. Now they'll have a lot that they can share with us tonight. Matthew Martinich is a behavioral psycho- psychotherapist and clinical psychology doctoral student in Colorado Springs. 
He provides mental health services to families charged with child abuse and neglect. He served a mission in South Korea and for the last seven years has studied how contextual factors and LDS missionary tactics have influenced growth rates in the LDS church. He maintains a blog, a very interesting blog, called ldschurchgrowth.blogspot.com. I think I've said enough, and I'll turn the time over to, we're going to start with you, Matthew, right? Thank you very much for that introduction. And before I begin, I just wanted to say, it's, this was a very difficult presentation for me to put together, just based on trying to consolidate all of the information that we have researched over the years into a short presentation. So um, that being said, why don't we get started? So today I will review the methodology we utilize to study LDS church growth and the missionary program. I will also touch upon recent church growth and missionary developments that we have come across in our research. The LDS Church has produced relatively few resources and materials on its growth. These materials have been limited to the annual statistical report released every April in General Conference, the Church's Facts and Statistics page on its newsroom website, the Deseret News Church Almanac from 1974 to 2013, and reports on specific programs in the Church, such as the Seminaries and Institutes Annual Report. A lack of materials documenting and analyzing LDS growth trends has resulted and limited awareness and understanding of the church's missionary program and approaches to growth. There has historically been little dialogue in the scholarly literature regarding how contextual factors affect LDS growth trends and the interaction between supply-sided and demand-sided needs that regulate the growth of the church on a local, regional, and global scale. Consequently, there has been little disclosure of what programs and methods have yielded the greatest church growth and missionary successes and, conversely, what approaches have been ineffective or detrimental to growth. To examine how context and the availability of mission resources have affected LDS growth trends, we have termed the study of missionary work and church growth as missiology. We have utilized a mixed approach of quantitative and qualitative approaches to studying church growth and missionary work in LDS church. I'll briefly review these approaches in my presentation. So with LDS sources, as I previously mentioned, the church releases few quantitative statistics on its growth. These statistics are related to country-by-country -country data, and this data is published in previous editions of the Church News, uh, Desert News Church Almanac. I was informed just this past January that the Church or the Desert News has discontinued its publication of the Church Almanac, um, and previously this was one of the most um, comprehensive sources of statistical data we had available. Currently, this information is available on LDS.org on a statistical web pages, but it's limited to membership growth or membership statistics and congregational statistics. The church has an online meeting house locator that can be accessed at maps.lds.org, and this resource has been helpful for us in identifying what locations have a church presence and what locations do not have a church presence. We use, we use LDS maps to determine the saturation of LDS outreach for individual cities and countries in conjunction with population statistics retrieved from government sources and online resources, such as um, a German-based website, or Germany-based website called citypopulation.de. Various calculations can be performed when combining these data to determine the extent of national outreach, such as ascertaining the average number of member 
average number of people, service by each congregation, by country or city, and identifying the most populous cities without an LDS presence. Combine these two data sources with year-to-year membership and congregational data for individual countries, sheds insight into member activity and convert retention rates in regards to how overall population growth compares to LDS growth rates. The church's official website for ordering materials that are translations for different languages is called store.lds.org. And this website has been important for us in identifying what languages have translations of LDS materials and how many materials are available in each language. The Seminaries and Institute Annual Reports is provided by the church education system. And these reports provide data on enrollment figures for each country with reportable church presence, as well as state-by-state figures for the United States. Other statistics presented in this report include the year seminary and institute began in each country and worldwide seminary and institute enrollment by school year since 1912. One of the sources of information that (coughs) is LDS-based that we've extensively used in our research is that from interviews, surveys, and websites from members of the church and missionaries. Most of these data pertain to sacrament meeting attendance, convert retention rates, and member activity rates. These data shed valuable insight to LDS growth trends wherever interviews or surveys are completed and where missionaries maintain websites and blogs that are accessible to the public. One of the most robust statistical measurements that we can use to evaluate the growth of the church is what we call the members to units ratio. Ratio, or units meaning congregations of the church, like wards and branches. This ratio is calculated by dividing church membership by the number of congregations to get the members to units ratio. The reason why this ratio is so important to the study of LDS church growth is because it takes into account not only the increase in number of members by convert baptisms and increase in children on record, but also takes into account the number of congregations being created, and whether the growth rates of those two different statistics are commensurate or they increase at the same rate. When the membership growth rate increases at a faster rate than the congregational growth rate, that usually implies poor convert retention, because otherwise we would see an equal growth rate of the two different statistics. So if we have congregations that are growing in active membership, that would ultimate result in the need to organize additional congregations. So I went through a couple countries just to illustrate how this statistic has been, how it's behaved over time in, in three different countries, starting with the United States. And the United States has experienced linear membership growth over the past uh, about 40 years now. And that change in the 80s there was due to changes in how children on record were considered members of the church, is my understanding. If we look at congregational growth rates in the the church in the United States, we see those also increase commensurately um, with membership growth, and it's also increasing in a linear fashion. So if we put the two together with the members to units ratio, we see that that ratio has been pretty stable over the past 25 years. Now, the members to units ratio in Chile looks much different. This is a graph showing membership growth in Chile, with the church being established in the late 1950s, and rapid growth occurring between the early 1970s and the late 1990s, and linear growth occurring thereafter. Congregational growth rapidly accelerated during the last quarter of the 20th century, 
was stagnant for just a matter of a couple years and then plummeted in the early 2000s as a result of, the hun of hundreds of congregations being consolidated. And since that time, um, we've seen virtually no change in number of congregations. So what this yields with the members unit ratio is that that statistic has dramatically increased to the point now there are over 900 members per congregation on average in Chile. Um, whereas we estimate that uh, member activity rate in Chile is only about 12%. Looking at another country that looks much different, members to unit ratio in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the church in this country experiences some of the highest Congo retention and member activity rates in the world. The church has grown rapidly since its establishment in the late 1980s and today experiences annual membership growth rates of 10% or more a year. Congregational growth rates have also increased commensurately for most of that time. There has been a slight increase in the members to unit ratio over the years, but that has been primarily due to many branches becoming wards, and wards require more members to operate than branches do. But if you notice, currently in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there are about 300 members per congregation on average, and compare that to Chile where there's 900, and you can see a dramatic difference in member activity and Congo retention rates. There are also non-LDS sources that we use for quantitative, um, our quantitative research, and these consist of different um, sources that provide demographic data and population data. One of those is the, is the CIA World Factbook. That's where we retrieve a lot of information we have in terms of population figures um, for the book that we wrote. Also, the U.S. Department of State was another source that we utilized in terms of compiling the <coughs> historical and economical portions of the country profiles in our book. Other official websites for proselyting Christian faiths, such as the Jehovah's Witness official website, jw.org, the Seventh-day Adventist Church official website, adventistatistics.org, and nazarene.org for compiling information on the Church of the Nazarene and their congregation and how those congregations are distributed. Citypopulation.de is a Germany-based website we utilize for a lot of population figures for individual cities. And Transparency International provides perceived corruption um, index statistics, and we use that also with doing our research in terms of determining how corruption affects LDS growth trends and um, economic conditions and so on. And one of the most compelling areas that we look at with the quantitative methodology for non-LDS sources is census data. And census data provides information on self-affiliated members of the church that identifies members of the church on the census in various government in different countries around the world. To provide you with some statistics as an example, for example, in Australia, the, 20, the 2006 census reported 53,100 Latter-day Saints only 45% of nominal church membership, notwithstanding member activity rates ranging from 25 to 30%. In New Zealand, the, 20, the 2006 census tallied 43,000 Latter-day Saints, which was only 45% of nominal membership of the church records. So this also provides us valuable information in terms of assessing member activity rates around the world. Whenever this information is reported in the census, which unfortunately isn't in very many countries. Now with the qualitative methodology, this consists of reports from church leaders, missionaries, and members regarding missionary work and church growth within their areas. And these reports are generally obtained through missionary websites and blogs. 
email and personal exchanges, surveys, and inquiries made within LDS circles of social media networks. Missionary websites and blogs provide a wealth of information, but these sites frequently contain details on member activity issues, perception of the church by society, frequent testimony building challenges for investigators and less active members, mission policies on convert baptismal standards, plans to open and close cities for proselytism, cultural conditions that hamper or facilitate missionary activity, the self-sufficiency and maturity of local priesthood leaders, and other church growth-related topics. The major benefit of utilizing missionary blogs and website data and missiology research centers on these sites providing current information regarding missionary work in most areas of the world. There are a few opportunities for researchers to obtain up-to-date information, particularly from full-time missionaries rather than return missionaries. Also, interested members, church leaders, and return missionaries have personally contacted missiology researchers to provide detailed information regarding church growth and missionary work in their areas. These reports provide interactive question and answer feedback regarding the church in their areas and usually generate high quality data. Also, LDS media and news articles can be a good source of qualitative data for studying the growth of the church and how that affects different areas of the world and how members of the church feel about that and, and just how that all relates to the quantitative data as well. With non-LDS sources, secular media news articles are also important for providing qualitative data. For example, researchers have relied on media news articles to determine <coughs> what local conditions have enhanced or deterred the growth of the church and the productivity of missionary efforts. It's also common for secular news media to frequently announce milestones for church growth within, they, within their area, such as the creation of a new congregation or stake and district creations. And with some of the other non-LDS sources for the quantitative data, they also provide qualitative data in regards to cultural conditions and um, just other things that might influence LDS growth. There are a few ethnographic sites that we utilize. One of them is everyculture.com and ethnolog.com. Ethnolog.com consists of a pretty comprehensive database and online encyclopedia that that lists all 7,000 plus living languages spoken in the world today and different information on how many people speak those languages and where they're spoken and whether they're written languages and so on. So for the second part of my presentation is on recent LDS growth developments that I've become aware of in my research over the past several years, which I thought would be interesting to share with you tonight. One of them is with China. The church had its first young elder serve a mission from China just about 10 years ago, and he finished his mission in 2006. Recent reports I've received from mainland Chinese missionaries indicate that there may be as many as 200 mainland Chinese members currently serving missions in various countries around the world. These Chinese missionaries typically serve in Mandarin-speaking missions in North America, Europe, and Oceania. And with these missionaries, they almost all of them were never taught by a missionary. They were taught by a relative or a family member in mainland China, because um, that's the only way that people can hear about the church in China based with the current religious freedom restrictions. So this is a pretty surprising um, development considering the first branch for Chinese nationals was created just in 2004. And now there might be as many as 200 members serving missions from mainland China currently. So in Ghana, the church has experienced the most prolific growth in the number of missions within the past decade. Um, in 2004, there was just one mission based in Ghana that also serviced Liberia and Sierra Leone, and currently there are four missions that exclusively serve Ghana, and both Sierra Leone and 
Liberia have their own issues now. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the church has gone from organizing its first branches to creating stakes within less than a decade in some locations, such as Kananga. And this progress has occurred without the assistance of full-time missionary. It is quite common in sub-Saharan Africa for the emergence of self-affiliated Latter-day Saints who are not baptized members. And these groups ask church leaders to establish a branch in their location and oftentimes it takes many years or decades for this to occur. And over the past several years, there's most countries in Africa have had this happen where they have groups of people that request baptism, but it often takes many years or even decades for that to happen, just based on limited mission resources. Recently, with the surge in the number of members serving full-time missions, most of that surplus missionary manpower has been absorbed into North American missions. And this has resulted in no noticeable increase in the number of total convert baptisms. Congregational decline is occurring in, in several areas of the world, most notably in Argentina, Mexico, Russia, and South Korea. The most severe decline has occurred in Argentina, as the number of wards and branches has declined by 62 since year in 2010. Historically low member activity and convert retention rates, decreasing numbers of convert baptisms, permissive social attitudes regarding church attendance, and limited local leadership have contributed to this decline. So currently the member activity rate in most of those countries, in all those countries, is less than 25%. Within the past six months, the church has assigned its first missionaries to Burma and Gabon. In Burma, the first missionaries arrived in um, just a few months ago, and they just serve in the small branch in Yangon, and they are not allowed to openly proselyte the working member referral. And in Gabon, missionaries um, don't appear to have any restrictions, and they work in the one branch in Libreville, and that branch has experienced considerable growth in active membership recently. Translations of LDS materials. There are 177 languages, living living languages, that have a translation of at least one LDS material. Um, this is much less than most proselyting groups. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses translate printed materials into over 440 languages, whereas Seventh-day Adventists translate printed materials in 370 languages. So Cote d'Ivoire has been an anomaly in recent years and has experienced some of the most rapid growth that we've seen in the past 20 years in the worldwide church. And I'm not going to go through all that for time's sake, but I just want to show you some maps real quick. So this was a map of Cote d'Ivoire just a few years ago. <clears throat> Only four cities had branches and another city had a group, which is the purple one. And the, blue, the green are branches and the yellow are wards. Currently this is what cities have branches in Cote d'Ivoire. This occurred just in a couple years. This is the capital city, of, or not the capital city, the most populous city, Abidjan. And all the red dots were, were wards or branches created in 2012 or 2013. Some of those wards were created less than 18 months after the ward that it was split from was created. This is what membership growth looks like in Cote d'Ivoire. And it's rapidly accelerated just in the past two years. And there are no North American missionaries that serve there, just native African missionaries that are French-speaking. And this is membership or congregational growth rates in Cote d'Ivoire. They've also been, actually, the congregational growth rates have, have surpassed membership growth rates, which is suggesting improving member activity and conflict retention rates. Cape Verde has also been another success story recently where the church has experienced more rapid congregational growth than membership growth. So I'm going to turn the time over now to David for his presentation. Don wanted me to briefly mention the Kimura.com website. It's a site uh, that I 
put online first in 1999, so it's been 15 years now as a, a resource for church growth, and uh, Matt has been doing most of the heavy lifting there over the past uh, three or four years, and he's uh, done a, a fabulous job. All of the country profiles in our book are also available free online there. And for those of you who'd like to order, we have it's a rather large book to uh, carry around. When I uh, sent Armin a copy, he joked that he might become one of my orthopedic patients if he dropped it on his foot. <laughs> and so those of you who would prefer the e-version, uh, there's also an ele electronic version that you can uh, order uh, online there if you uh, would, would like. In my talk here, I've also included some photos that I've uh, taken uh, traveling uh, the world. These are all my uh, original photos. I've taken over 100,000 photos in, in 36 countries over the last few years. The LDS, Church growth has, the LDS Church has experienced considerable growth from its inception in 1830 to a present nominal membership of over 15 million. In 1996, the church crossed the threshold of the majority of members living outside of the United States. There are currently over 29,000 LDS congregations worldwide and over 80,000 full-time missionaries serving in 405 missions. The church has a presence in nations that are home to 97% of the world's population, including an official presence in 142 nations and territories and an unofficial presence in 37. However, Understanding and interpreting LDS statistics can nonetheless be challenging. As Matt discussed at some length, LDS membership statistics do not necessarily imply uh, activity or self-identification as a, a Latter-day Saint, only that a person was once baptized or as a children of record. And so we have to be very careful uh, when we're evaluating the numbers to understand what they mean and, and what they don't so that we can compare apples to apples when we do comparative research looking at other faiths, and Matt has addressed that uh, at, at some length here. An example is the 2000 Glen Mary Research Center study that found that the LDS Church was the fastest growing denomination within the United States with over a million members. So what does that really mean? Because LDS statistics don't tell us how many of the people on the rolls are actually attending or believing members, and, and those of some other faiths, not all, but some other uh, faiths do base numbers on some definition of activity, uh, some do not. Acti analysis suggests that less than half the increase in active U.S. LDS membership comes from convert growth. The majority is attributable to the larger average family size of U.S. active Latter-day Saints and the higher retention rate of those born in the church compared to converts. Additionally, the disproportionately high concentration of LDS missions in North America is also a factor. Approximately one-third of all LDS missions are in the United States, which is home to only about one-third of the world's population. So the LDS Church is doing well, fairly well here, but for a variety of reasons that are somewhat more complex than simply receptivity to the missionary program. David, you said one-third of the world's population. Did you mean 5%? Because that's what you have. Uh, I'm sorry, one-third of the uh, LDS uh, missions are in North America with less than 5% of the world's population. What is going on with church growth today? The church remains, to a great extent, a hemispheric church. In 2000, 86% of world church membership spoke English, Spanish, or Portuguese, and the figures have changed little since that time. 
Outside of the Americas, the majority of the world's remaining Latter-day Saints live in island nations, including the Philippines, Japan, and the United Kingdom. The church has some congregations in most other nations, but only about 6% live in the continental Afro-Eurasian landmass that is home to over 80% of the world's population. The church has traditionally demonstrated strong numerical membership growth in Latin America, although only a fraction of ostensible converts have become participating church members, and Matt has uh, addressed that. Uh, Latin America is still far from being self-sufficient in local missionaries and church finances. The 2000s saw a 34% increase in nominal membership in South America, but only a 0.2% increase in congregations, with modest congregational gains in some nations being largely counterbalanced by consolidations in others, including 266 congregations being closed in Chile. Central America experienced modest congregational gains over this period, although nominal membership gains continued to outstrip congregational growth. In the Eastern Hemisphere, LDS church membership is most prominent in the Philippines, United Kingdom, Japan, and West Africa. In Western Europe, LDS church attendance has been largely stagnant or even declining for some 20 years now, notwithstanding nominal increases in total membership in most countries. The number of LDS congregations in Western Europe declined by 174 between 2000 and 2011, with the present number of 1,100 congregations in the region approximating the number in 1987. For more than 20 years now, LDS church growth in Western and Central Europe has occurred primarily among minority groups from Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, rather than among native peoples. Although this has offered exposure to the gospel among many groups who come from nations with limited church presence, converts from these groups have experienced high turnover due to cultural and linguistic differences, challenges of fellowshipping and integration, and in some cases a lack of feeling of belonging. In Eastern Europe, the church experienced a wave of initial growth with the introduction of missionaries after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Membership growth rates in Eastern Europe were higher than in most world regions in the 2000s, but congregational growth rates were among the slowest, as convert baptisms were offset in many cases by a loss of previously active members to inactivity with little net growth. Active membership has plateaued or slightly declined in the area over the past 10 to 15 years. Eastern Europe appears to have the least self-sufficient missionary force of any world region. The number of LDS congregations in Eastern Europe went from 296 in 2000 to 294 in 2005 and 307 in 2011, whereas over 1,700 Jehovah's Witness congregations operate in Ukraine alone. The situation in Central Asia and the Caucasus is somewhat bleaker, with a stake in Armenia, but only a small number of members in Georgia and Kazakhstan, and no official church presence or significant indigenous membership in Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. With the fall of the Soviet Union, significant religious freedom was present in the early 1990s, during which time Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and other missionary-oriented faiths formed congregations and developed core memberships. The LDS Church did not utilize these opportunities due to a lack of preparation and strategic planning. By the time the Church was ready to enter these nations, as demonstrated by Elder Nelson's overtures to Kyrgyzstan in the early 2000s, the pendulum of religious freedom had swung back to exclude foreign religious workers, and the door to enter these nations was closed. Other groups which had entered in the 1990s have continued to operate, although with some restrictions, but have achieved continued success through the efforts of local members, particularly in Kyrgyzstan. 
the church experienced remarkable growth in Mongolia through the efforts of older service missionaries. Mongolia has subsequently restricted foreign missionaries, but the LDS church there has continued to grow through the efforts of a strong native missionary force and local membership built up during the window of opportunity and has become the dominant Christian church in the country. One can only wonder what successes might have been achieved in other more populous Central Asian nations had opportunities for proselytism been used when doors were open. The development of an LDS membership base in Armenia and the branches in Kazakhstan arose as a fortuitous result of the efforts of mature expatriate members rather than from any strategic vision or initiative of the LDS missionary program. While these successes are laudable, relying on chance or miracle to build the church in unreached nations may not be the best policy. As for every ostensible miracle, there are numerous missed opportunities and unreached areas. Organizations such as the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses that proactively implement a strategic vision for reaching the world have achieved much greater success in expanding into new areas and developing a strong, self-sustaining, and self-perpetuating core of international members. The LDS Church has experienced encouraging trends in West Africa, with sustained growth accompanied by the highest rates of LDS member activity in the world for an area of convert growth. This trend, as Matt has noted, appears to be rooted in local cultural factors, as well as missionary work being conducted primarily by native missionaries with a vested interest in quality and building a sustainable local church infrastructure, rather than by itinerant North American missionaries without accountability for, camp, for convert outcomes. These trends in, in LDS church growth in Africa are largely refer, reflective of the experience of other outreach-oriented Christian denominations, although on a nearly microscopic scale. Both Rwanda and Tanzania each have more active Seventh-day Adventists than there are active Latter-day Saints in all of continental Europe, Asia, and Africa combined. In East and Southeast Asia, home to more than half of the world's population, LDS growth has been meager. India, with over a billion people, has only a few thousand active Latter-day Saints, compared to several hundred thousand active Adventists and 24 million Christians. Restrictions on foreign missionaries have allowed denominations with successful member missionary programs to experience rapid growth, whereas denominations primarily dependent upon foreign missionaries have experienced some growth, but absolute membership has remained very small. Proselytism remains restricted in China, but some members have joined the, search, joined the church overseas and returned to their homeland or have joined as a result of limited member missionary outreach by local members. In Indonesia, with nearly 250 million people and some 25 million Christians, active LDS membership has been largely static for nearly 40 years or less than 2,000. And many islands and people groups remain completely unreached, notwithstanding the considerable growth of many denominations over the same period. What can we expect from the future? In the medium term, I anticipate modest increases in active membership in North, Central, and South America. In Africa, significant member increases are expected with considerable congregational expansion, although membership will remain at a fraction of the level of other outreach-oriented faiths. In Western Europe, congregations are likely to remain fairly stable with slight contraction over long periods. LDS membership in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and other nations of Eastern Europe is likely to increase nominally, but active membership is likely to remain fairly stable or to increase only slightly over many years. Membership in Arabic and Turkic Muslim nations is likely to remain low, with few native members and little growth. Little growth can be expected in Japan or Korea. The Philippines, Cambodia, Thailand, and Mongolia are likely to demonstrate continued growth in active membership. 
although at a slowing pace. Latter-day Saints have done reasonably well in North America, Latin America, and Oceania, but these nations hold a relatively small proportion of the world's population. The combination of declining U.S. LDS birth rates with the small proportion of the world's population in nations with a large LDS presence means that growth in these areas will inevitably become less significant over time. Latter-day Saints are doing less well than other missionary-oriented faiths in populous developing nations of Africa and Asia, many of which restrict foreign missionaries and require strong member missionary programs to grow. As a result, the comparative advantage of Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses will increase, and these denominations are likely to experience proportionally faster growth than Latter-day Saints, at least when we look past official membership numbers to consider active membership and increase of congregations. The annual compounding of growth rates means that groups with even modest advantages in these areas will be ahead several fold in 20 to 50 years. Although the mark of more than half of nominal LDS membership living outside of the United States was reached nearly 20 years ago, a more meaningful landmark of the internationalization of the church would be for half of active LDS membership to live in continental Afro-Eurasia that is home to over 80% of the world's population. However, projection of current trends in the future does not suggest that this milestone is likely to ever be reached, and there is no development on the horizon which is likely to significantly change this dynamic. Both Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses crossed this threshold long ago and are experiencing much more balanced, as well as more rapid, real growth on the world stage. Matt has done an excellent job in detailing some key trends in church growth. And beyond that, uh, there would be little purpose for me to further discuss a topic which I cannot treat well in the available time. So those who are interested in a more detailed country-by-country statistical analysis are invited to refer to consult our two-volume Church Growth Almanac, along with other sources. In the remaining time, I wish to turn my attention to four central challenges, or four central topics, which which will be key to future prospects for LDS growth. Work ethic, preparation for baptism, member missionary work, and leadership. The first major challenge for the LDS missionary program is an inadequate culture of work. Generations of missionaries have been taught missionary department claims that tracking and street contacting are so ineffective that many feel that these activities are scarcely worth bothering with. In many areas, missionaries engage in a dinner circuit with members, neutralizing missionaries during prime proselyting time, while neither missionaries nor members are doing the hard work of opening their mouths to non-members about the gospel. The number of individuals approached and hours spent in direct contacting are nowhere officially measured or reported. The number of contacts made by missionaries in many areas of the world is much less than one might assume. In our almanac, we have included figures on the percentage of the population in each area that lives, uh, that lives in areas with LDS congregations or mission outreach centers, but the mere presence of an LDS mission in an area does not necessarily imply that non-members within its boundaries are being reached on a significant scale. In my mission in a newly opened area of Russia in the early 1990s, my mission president found that the average missionary companionship was approaching an astonishingly low number of only five non-members a day. My subsequent surveys in other uh, regions have found results which vary, but uh, this is not uh, completely atypical. The Jehovah's Witnesses were literally running circles around us while Mormon missionaries were scarcely getting out of doors. 
I found in my own experience as a missionary that I had to make far more contacts on a regular basis in order to achieve meaningful success. Many of our members, missionaries, and leaders have bought into a get-rich-quick scheme of missionary work promising big results with little effort. Uh, The idea that instead of opening our, our mouths to share the gospel with everyone, that we can pray for inspiration to direct our efforts to a single individual or family who is already prepared to hear the missionary discussions and accept baptism. When the promised successes do not occur, individuals often become discouraged and desist from participation. We ought to instead focus on sharing the gospel as a regular habit in the lives of faithful members, much in the same way as church attendance and scripture reading, focusing on our personal effort and not so much on the responses of others that we cannot control. Ezra Taft Benson stated, The secret of missionary work is work, 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 work. Perhaps we can learn something from other denominations that have been more successful in building strong international congregations. The Adventists have a plan for reaching every person in the world with the gospel by both personal contact and media approaches, whereas many of our missionaries have plans only for dinner. And few, if any, LDS missions have a concrete plan for reaching most or all of the non-members within their boundaries. It takes an average of 1,636 hours of Jehovah's Witness preaching in Moldavia to gain one convert baptism, 8,215 in Spain, and 17,415 in Japan. These are astonishingly large numbers, yet the Jehovah's Witnesses have achieved far more active numbers, higher growth rates, and greater missionary success in these and most other nations of the Eastern Hemisphere than Latter-day Saints. It is difficult to escape the conclusion that the Jehovah's Witnesses have achieved success in building strong and growing membership in many nations where LDS membership is stagnant or in decline, not because people are more receptive to their message, but because the Witnesses work much harder and more consistently. I'm not saying that we should not try to work more effectively or that the methods of these other groups are fully optimal and without these challenges. But there is a clear need to re-enthrone work and the the scriptural imperative to reach the world with the gospel as the operative principles of our missionary and member missionary programs. Expectations of impressive results with little effort lead to the second major institutional challenge. Continued quick baptize tactics attempting to compress the conversion process into short arbitrary periods. Although the Preach My Gospel manual has introduced some ostensible standards for baptism, I have found in practice that many missions remain focused primarily on achieving monthly baptismal goals with the minimum possible teaching, rather than on meeting an investigator's spiritual needs and providing a solid foundation for genuine conversion and ongoing church activity. Quick baptized methods inevitably lead to an increase in nominal membership, with few of the ostensible converts becoming active and participating members. The subsequent need to pastor large numbers of unreceptive and often hostile inactives diverts large amounts of missionary member time towards poorly productive reactivation efforts for decades to come. While serving as a ward mission leader and ward missionary in Texas and Nevada, I was told by local missionaries that their mission policy was to baptize individuals who attended only two sacrament meetings, and have heard similar reports from many other areas. Yet, the official requirement in the Preach My Gospel manual mandates that converts must attend church several times before baptism. The dictionary defines the word several as three or more. 
more than two. It seems astonishing that literate people would have to have a discussion about this. Nor is it clear that attending several times before baptism is adequate for all or even the majority of prospective converts. Yet in most missions, attendance at two or three sacrament meetings is held to be evidence that the individual has met this requirement for baptism rather than being regarded as a lower limit. In some missions, no pretense is made of meeting even these meager standards, and such tactics in the cases of which I am aware seem to have been upheld by the area presences. The responsibility for quick baptized tactics does not lie with young missionaries alone. To a great extent, these methods have reflected the policies and pressure of mission and area leaders concerned with maximizing baptismal numbers with little regard to long-term member activity. Many missionaries have experienced events, such as members of the area presently teaching that by cutting the teaching time from the first contact to baptism from three weeks down to two, they can achieve 50% more baptisms or similar ideas in this vein. Such reasoning is invalid from both logical and practical standpoints for causes that I will not address today. Yet the ethical problems with such thinking are even more disturbing. Investigators and and prospective converts must not be commoditized. And the underlying goal of missionary work should be long-term conversion rather than quick sales. These tactics do not represent the policies of all missions and areas. There has been some trend for improvement, for which I am grateful. But the fact that such methods persist on a significant scale, and not only in isolated cases, should be cause for considerable concern. The days of font-side calls for baptism, baseball baptisms, and the practice of pushing investigators to be baptized within two or three days of the first contact appear to be largely over, with few notable exceptions. But it is also true that notwithstanding at least some ostensible standards, the LDS missionary program remains very far from genuinely investigator-centered approaches focused on the individual's spiritual needs and actual progress rather than on short-term baptismal goals, and far from the preparation are typically achieved by faiths like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, which have retained a much higher proportion of their converts. Effective and enlightened investigator-centered policies in some missions have focused on quality preparation for baptism and growing active membership. Yet, these policies have frequently been reversed with changes in leadership. It is appropriate that new individuals should bring new perspectives and insight and should have freedom to make necessary changes. However, The lack of institutional memory has resulted in cycles of of excess followed by retrenchment rather than lasting progress as each new crop of missionaries and leaders must perpetually reinvent the wheel. The third major institutional challenge is an inadequate and underdeveloped LDS member missionary program. The 19th century doctrine of gathering leading to the development of the LDS faith in relatively homogeneous core communities and the subsequent LDS dominant culture in the contemporary Mormon corridor have fostered some positive achievements which persist to the present, including high rates of full-time missionary service and a core community where LDS values are upheld. Other achievements include the higher birth rate among active Latter-day Saints and relatively higher activity and retention among lifelong U.S. Mormons. However, these achievements have come with significant trade-offs. And as the church has become more internationalized and its membership decentralized, Features that previously held mostly positive value are presenting increasing liabilities. Perhaps the greatest liability is that in contrast to other outreach-oriented faiths, like the Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses, at no time in LDS history has member missionary work been the norm for active core members. A mission was always something that someone went away to do for a period of service, 
never a gospel habit implemented in the course of daily life by large numbers of members, in the same way that we emphasize daily scripture reading and weekly church attendance. As a result, most LDS members are religiously and culturally isolated from non-Latter-day Saints and feel uncomfortable in gospel discussions with non-members. Only 3-5% to of active Latter-day Saints in North America regularly participate in missionary work. Research has found that even ward missionaries spend considerably less time interacting with non-members than in meetings and administrative functions. Member missionary work remains a black box for the vast majority of Latter-day Saints, including most leaders, with some having glimmers of insight into particular aspects, but very few having a solid grasp of the whole process. Teachings about member missionary work have been heavy on exhortations, but often lacking in genuine insights and positive example. Most Latter-day Saints have little idea of how their non-Mormon neighbors think or feel, have little experience sharing the gospel with them, and few or no effective examples. While LDS full-time missionary mobilization rates are among the highest for outreach-oriented faiths, member missionary participation is among the lowest. This has proven to be a severe impediment as the church becomes more internationalized. The lack of strong member missionary programs and the continued reliance on itinerant missionaries, full-time missionaries focused on baptism, without incentives for quality and without accountability for poor convert outcomes, has fueled quick baptized mentalities in contrast to more useful and realistic approaches of faith where missionary work is primarily conducted by local members, in which we can see even in the LDS faith in regions where missionary work is done primarily by locals, as in Côte d'Ivoire and Nigeria, as Matt has touched upon. Effective member missionary work differs in important ways from the full-time LDS missionary program as currently implemented. And this is particularly problematic for future growth prospects, as an increasing number of nations, including very populous nations like India, China, and Pakistan, forbid or severely restrict proselytism by foreign missionaries while granting much wider liberties to native members. The final challenge relates to the quality of mission leadership. Mission leaders are often well qualified to serve as pastoral leaders, administrators, or surrogate parents for young missionaries, which are all important skills. Yet things have changed much from the days of the early church, where leaders were great missionaries in their own right, who knocked on doors, taught discussions, held street meetings, and organized congregations. Most modern LDS mission leaders view their role primarily as managers rather than as leaders. Like ward mission leaders, most full-time mission leaders spend their time primarily in meetings and administrative duties, with little and sometimes no time spent actually contacting or teaching investigators. Many have rationalized that the role of knocking on doors and teaching discussions is a menial task of the lower ranks. Nothing could be further from the truth. In addition to direct practical results, regular involvement in all aspects of the finding, teaching, and retention process is essential to develop and refine valid insights to be passed on to missionaries. Leadership, not by example, is not, example, is, is not leadership, and we've had enough in the missionary program of individuals who are managers but not leaders. Missionaries who give up 18 to 24 of the best months of their lives to preach the gospel have a right to leaders who lead by example and who have real insights based on current practical experiences as well as a solid scriptural and moral foundation so that they are not wasting their time on misdirected initiatives and, most importantly, so that they can effectively serve the non-members they find and teach. So, in closing, there's much to learn still about church growth and missionary work. I'm not such a wise person, but I think that we can know at least some things. I think that multidisciplinary evaluation of the data does give us strong indications of which approaches are more or less likely to be helpful and effective. 
I believe that individuals have, who have a solid understanding of the available data, as well as consistent current practical experience, are better able to formulate effective policies and practices than those who seek to receive inspiration in an informational vacuum. In view of the importance which Latter-day Saints attribute to church growth and sharing the gospel, I believe that there is a moral imperative for missionaries and members to focus on the spiritual welfare non-members and investigators by implementing approaches which are most likely to lead prospective converts to succeed as active and participating church members receiving the blessings of the gospel. I do not believe that it is ethically or morally justifiable to implement policies and methods that subordinate the spiritual welfare of others to arbitrary baptismal goals or other external considerations. Although many things have transpired in the past, we have better information today than our predecessors, and it is no more ethical for missions and missionaries today to implement practices that lead to high rates of inactivity and poor convert outcomes than it is for surgeons to operate without hand-washing antibiotics and contemporary methods supported by the best current information. As President Hinckley admonished, we must be very careful to ensure that we demonstrate integrity in our missionary program and are not exploiting people by bringing them into the church only to have their enthusiasm turned to ashes and leaving them worse off than they were before by rushing them into commitments for which they are not well prepared. Baptism is not for those who have not experienced a genuine and life-changing conversion and are prepared to continue forward, and it is best for everyone to candidly acknowledge this. I have found in life that success in any endeavor comes from the consistent application of, co of correct principles. I do not diminish the need for tailoring approaches to individual situations, yet I also see a need in missionary work as in medicine for certain standards of care, evidence, and ethically-based principles which embody the level of care and attention, the specific measures to promote positive outcomes which patients, investigators, friends, neighbors, and the people of the world can expect from us. The standards for our missionary outreach toward others should be the same that we would desire for ourselves or a loved one. The principles embodied in the standard of care do not imply that all outcomes will be ideal or that our efforts will be without some failure. However, a principled approach is far more likely to achieve positive outcomes on a wider and more consistent scale and less likely to lead to complications or failures than approaches without these principles. If we cannot find common principles and standards based not in hopes for personal distinction, advancement within the church hierarchy, or other motives, but in our concern and moral regard for others and implement them with consistency and appropriate oversight, then perhaps it is time for us to go back and examine our hearts before undertaking to preach the gospel to the world. We cannot instill in others a greater degree of ethics and morality than we possess ourselves, and no worthy cause can be lastingly furthered by means which are not equally worthy. We have perhaps not fully lived up to the trust and confidence of the receptive people who we have taught, nor of the world's unreached. The missionary program will not be revitalized by tweaking the missionary manual in a few key areas or reshuffling the furniture. Rather, a deep transformation of our church culture and mentality will be needed if the church is to meet its potential for growth and impact and to remain a vibrant, outreach-oriented organization in contrast to so many other faiths that have experienced initial periods of rapid growth followed by retrenchment and stagnation. Several key understandings are needed, that there is no substitute for hard work in reaching the people of the world, that there are no shortcuts to lasting conversion, that sharing the gospel should be a regular weekly lifelong habit for all members as an essential part of gospel living, and that leaders should lead by example or not at all. Thank you.
Thanks so much, David and Matt. Uh, that was very enlightening, and there was so much information that I'm sure a lot of us had a hard time even absorbing all of it. We have some time for questions, however, so perhaps we can we can take those. I, I'd like to just ask one question right up front. I was interested in the uh, in the statement that was made that most of the new most of the new missionaries we've seen an increase, a big increase as we know, because of the lowering of the missionary age. But the majority of those are serving stateside missions, and that's kind of been my experience as I see people going out. A lot of people are being called to the United States. And my question is, why do you think that is? Why are not more people being allocated to areas where we're really seeing a need for growth, such as Africa? Does it have to do with logistics, such as visas and things? Or would it have anything to do with the church perhaps being reluctant to have too large of a growth rate in areas that are not financially able to support it? What, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. <clears throat> Microphone again. And then just go ahead. You guys can feel questions from the group. Yeah, I would say one of the primary reasons why we've seen it happen is because the infrastructure in the church is so much more easily able to accommodate that influx of missionaries in the United States than in other areas of the world. So it's much easier for missionary housing, for visas, like you mentioned, to accommodate that, that surplus than if we were to send them all to, um, you know, Ghana, which, you know, I mean, that would be more difficult. But I would say that's but one of the probably cheaper, right? I mean, it doesn't cost a lot to live in Ghana, does it? No. no but it costs a lot to operate a mission in Ghana, though. I can promise you that. It's very expensive. <laughs> okay. Uh, not all missionaries are able to serve internationally. Uh, not all missionaries are able to travel overseas because of health concerns. Not all missionaries are interested in learning another language. And locations like Ghana uh, also provide various health concerns. It's very important in the missionary department to ensure that the missionaries in the field can be appropriately, that they're in a safe environment, which is, is monitored with access to uh, health care and other, uh, to, to some extent, it is a resource allocation question. And you know, when I was doing my medical training in Texas, I, I wondered sometimes why we had six missionaries in our little branch, on our little ward on Galveston Island, and the church couldn't find any missionaries to send to countries like Kyrgyzstan or to open cities with a, a million people in many parts of the developing world. So there, there's some of that, but also the other other concerns. The fact that at least uh, four or five years ago, 80% of, of LDS missionaries do originate from North America does, to some extent, uh, limit where they can be sent and that a significant proportion of those missionaries will need to stay close to home because of... Uh, health or, or language concerns uh, in addition to the pre-existing church infrastructures. Just a comment about what you said. Uh, I think the, the, the primary reason that we send missionaries out is to train our young people to lead an active life in the church. And I think, I think uh, part of that should be to train them to be missionaries for life. That's, that, I think that's your point. However, uh, what is happening more and more is that missionaries uh, don't have a great experience in the mission field and come back without having had a fulfilling experience. They don't stay in the church. That's one concern that I, that our, that, uh, I think our brethren have. Uh, one, one way, I mean, my suggestion years ago was that, that we have our missionaries active in, in service activities you know, to, to, to make sure they get close to the populations. And, and we found that to be successful and people would feel good about their missionary experience if they were in a, in a, in a meaningful service activity on a regular basis with the, with the lo with local people. Uh, that seemed to work. I think that's 
it's a problem in our ward. We're, we're, we're worrying about what we have more missionaries than ever in our ward, and, and we don't have. Uh, we, we worry about what to do with them. You know, um, what, what, and, so, and so I think I think that's. What, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, missionaries are supposed to have a good experience, right? Yeah, and a lot of times we're seeing that um, resource or you know, that resource being the missionaries being channeled into the reactivation efforts, which unfortunately yield frustrating few results, um, just by the full-time missionaries heading that. Yeah, in the back. Bra- Bravo! This is really interesting. Have you? I want to ask: Have you had any interest at all on the part of the LDS Church for for your work? And conversely, have you felt like you're at some risk in publishing this information? <laughs> well, we prefer to, to be independent, so that way we can you know, just present the information for what it is and not have to, to worry about that. Um, so is there anything you want right? to add to that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well. Okay. If you were invited to the MTC, would you go? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Can you make a comment on the... Um, uh, what changes the church made in Chile, for example, when you saw this this spike? Uh, having, yeah. having been a missionary in Central America in the early 60s, I was faced with, I thought what you said, back, uh, baseball back is really struck a chord with me. Uh, we, we were under tremendous pressure to baptize in those days. Yeah, the, the requirements for baptism were very minimal, um, if really, if you can call requirements back then. And what the church did in an effort to try to to retain all those converts was they created branches and wards that were smaller than they should be for the number of active members. That didn't <coughs> result, though, in, in that growth occurring because the rationale is, we'll just give everyone a, a calling and then they'll be retained and they'll learn. And it, it didn't work out. You had most of the wards having probably fewer than 50 active members. Elder Holland went down and reorganized the stakes. 41 stakes were discontinued. And... Um, once he left, but about 2004, I think it was 2005, that's when we saw that change where it just was plateaued. Was there a change in the missionary in the way the, the emphasis on baptisms by the church? Just like with what, did you want to address that, David? Or yeah, Both Elder Holland in Chile and Elder Oaks in the Philippines did institute some uh, baptismal standards requiring that converts attend church uh, typically a, a minimum of three times before baptism, uh, as well as some other uh, standards, which, which did result in a decrease. Uh, it did help to even out the prior nosedive and uh, activity and, and start to build uh, branches again with converts that were retained. There, this was a huge problem a few years ago. Uh, in, in some parts of Latin America, 30 to 40% of quote-unquote converts weren't even coming to church to be confirmed after their baptism because these uh, of the kind of teaching that was going on. And so you know, both Elder Holland and, and Oaks really worked to shut that down and try to implement at least some kind of standards so that you know, the, the converts became active uh, participating members following the baptism. So the, the question Back when I was out there, there was incredible pressure on for the for baptism numbers that came from the from the area presidencies. They got pressure from 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 wherever they reported to. Uh, is that still the case today? I would say it it is, um, and I think a lot of pressure probably comes also from the missionary department. I, I think you know, Elder President Watson has stated that uh, in a number of words that 
if you want to improve something, you need to measure and report it. And that's why it's uh, obviously of some concern, I think, to us that the, the primary indicator continues to be baptismal numbers. There was a, a mission president in Brazil several years ago who told me, the area president has told me you'll be judged by the number of baptisms, nothing else. And this was after the publication of the Preach My Gospel Manual. And uh, as I said, uh, as we've discussed, uh, the church actually has done better in areas without North American missionaries where there's a, a strong indigenous missionary effort, as in some countries of West Africa. Having uh, itinerant full-time missionaries is not necessarily mm-hmm. a good thing if the standards uh, are not high, because there's no incentive for quality, there's no accountability for poor outcomes, and I think, and I think we've, at least I have advocated for, for some years now, I, I think we really need to look at the retention as uh, a key outcome of our missionary efforts, something that's that's measured and reported. But, you know, it's, it's difficult because then we get into a couple of other questions. One is this, this well, it, baptizing is the missionary's job and retention is the member's job. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but I don't think that's really the right narrative, because if you're baptizing people who've been to one or two soccer meetings and they're not coming to church for members to fellowship, you know, if they're baptized and they're not even coming back to be confirmed, they're not there, how, how is it the members' fault if, that these people aren't retained if they haven't undergone a true conversion? And, you know, I've known of numerous cases where local, you know, bishops or ward mission leaders have expressed their concern about a convert not being ready for baptism. And in virtually every case that I know of, the mission policy has been simply to override that. And, and I think that's just very unfortunate. I don't think you get good cooperation with the members by, um, you know, simply asserting prerogative. Um, my own experience with my, my friends over the years, I've had several friends who came into the church, and, you know, I would have them come to church regularly for several weeks, for three, four, five weeks, and, uh, you know, read scriptures and do all mm-hmm. that stuff, every time before I would even dare to introduce them to the missionaries. Because I knew that once that happened, it would be a high-pressure environment. And, and I've seen it actually drive people away that could have been, you know, in my opinion, brought in had we been more sensitive to their, their needs and not, you know, I have to have a baptism in, in two weeks to meet my numbers. Was that before Preach My Gospel or after Preach My Gospel? After. Yeah, uh couple observations, and I have a question I'd really like to get your insight on. Um, I dated a woman up in Palos Verdes uh, for a long time, and in about 2005, President Lam, who's Chinese, there's a large uh, Chinese contingent up there, told me that Sunrider Company, which does health foods as Chinese ownership, was bringing people to a lot of business in mainland China. They're bringing people over, their managers over, for a one-week training session every summer. Well, they kept asking about the church when they got over here, because they were meeting a lot of Mormons in the building. Um, and at first they were hesitant to go, and they said, well, we might as well, you know, baptize them and see what happens when we send them back. Well, it, it grew so much that the, as they came over, then they were doing their management training during the day and LDS leadership training at night for a week. And he said about 1,500 of the then 3,000 members uh, in China that were natives had come through the Sunrider programs. Uh, this is back about 2005. So that's part of, I think, what was going on there. I, you know, I don't know what's happened since then last year. You know, this is something I usually don't talk about, but when I was on my mission in South Korea, we actually baptized 111 people from the Sunrider Company. Well, okay. Yeah, in one weekend. But 
Yeah, that's one of the ways that, <laughs> that happened. But, they, but they're not. But they're doing thorough work with them. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's not driving. It, it isn't like they. Yeah, like there's there is the accountability because they they have the interest. It's been kindled for months. And, and when they're in an environment where they can, and they're also they creating the strong leadership to go back over there and serve. We had the raising the bar thing about ten years ago, and the missionary force fell by a, a, almost twenty percent, from about sixty-two thousand to about fifty-one thousand. And convert baptisms dropped from about 283 to about 240, but recovered with a fifth fewer missionaries to about the 280 level, 280,000 level. But then it stayed there as the missionary force stayed at about 52,000. In October of 2011, President Monson announced the lowering of the age, and we had this onrush or inrush of missionaries. So in, in 2009, we had 280,000 convert baptisms with 52,000 missionaries. In 2011, 281,000 with 55,000 missionaries. And last year, we had 283,000 with 83,000 missionaries. A 4% increase in converts with a 40% increase in missionaries. So I think there's something awry here. What do you think is going to happen next? And that's, uh, there's been a lot of speculation online about what's going on with that. And, you know, one of the reasons why is there, again, you know, like, was previously commented, what are we going to do with all these missionaries serving North American missions if nothing has changed with the membership being involved in missionary work, really? Well, um, what kind of experience are they having on their missions? It's not what I have. Yeah. Would you want to okay, we have other questions. Your uh, Reister, without expanding to new areas, a point of diminishing returns is reached, to which, and especially if missionaries are not doing a lot of contacting, as I mentioned, if they're primarily dependent on member referrals, uh, a linear increase in missionaries does not result in a linear increase in conversions. It seems like we're losing our kids when, when they hit college age from active Mormon families, and especially our girls. And what kind of statistics and what are you seeing? See, I, I can tell you in our area, almost every girl who's gone through the Young Women's Program hit college and is not active now in multiple wards in our, our South County area. A lot of that depends on, on location. And this is something just speaking to the United States in terms of activity rates with, with youth and young adults. But a lot of that just depends on location. There's some areas where it's very high, and there's other areas where it's extremely low. So, for example, I went to school at CU Boulder for my undergrad, and about 10% of the members in our state that were young single adults were active. Um, and a lot of it was because they, they were kind of attracted to that environment, and so that's why it was like that. But in terms of, of what you're saying there with your concern, um, you know, it, it, it really just depends on location and culture, and also if they go to a church school or not church school, that becomes a huge issue, especially in the United States with with um, culture and feeling support, and you know, a lot of times, if people go to a college where there's it's not an LDS school, and the whole idea of LDS schools and growth is something that is difficult for the worldwide church too, because there are no LDS universities in other countries. There's also a macro societal trend of decreasing religiosity in the United States and other Western cultures, and, and all faiths have. Uh, experienced this, and this is why I, I noted that it's somewhat concerning that our areas of, of strength, areas like you know, the light United States, or to some extent Western Europe, or, or Japan, because with uh, increasing secularism, decreasing birth rates, and, and as you mentioned, the loss of, of youth to uh, inactivity, uh, the strengths that carried church growth 
20, 30, 40 years ago are not going to be the same going forward. I don't know of really recent uh, studies addressing this. Uh, the, the last, there was one called the Young Men's Study that was published in the Ensign, I believe, in the, 19, in the early 80s, which showed that only about 43% of, of uh, born in the church Latter-day Saints remained active their whole lives. Uh, with another 20 to 25% returning to church after some period of inactivity. Uh, I'm certain also that those statistics have gone down meaningfully since that time, but I'm not aware of uh, a good quality study that would give us uh, specific data about that presently. In the back? Yes. Uh, Kind of backing way up, the 15 million nominal members. Now, when a child of record reaches eight, does that name go off the 15 million, or is it still there? That's the first part of my question. Okay. I have a child. It's, sure. It, you know, sure. it's and, blessed but never baptized. Sure, and, and I believe, um, actually, that name stays on until 18, usually, and then it's taken off. Okay, so at about eight, at 18, mm-hmm. the name comes off. But so think, our 15 yeah. million shouldn't have any 18-year-olds that have never been baptized. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I believe that might also be a country-by-country country policy as well in terms of when children of record are removed from records, but I believe it's 18. But it's if it's a child that's 9 years old and older that was a children of record that was not baptized at 8, then that counts as a convert baptism. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's something. I've, I've heard both, so I'm, okay. I'm not exactly sure. The other thing is you were giving uh, comparative numbers of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and... Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, what are their overall nominal numbers worldwide and U.S.? Uh, as of August 2013, there were 7.69 million uh, Seventh-day Adventists worldwide. They report only active proselytizing adult members uh, who average 16 to 18 hours of proselytizing time a week. And so their actual That's attendance... That's the only people they report on their records? That is correct. They report... Uh, Memorial attendance witnesses. They're not counted. That's yeah. that's correct. So their statistics. If you look wow. at their memorial attendance, which is I think coming up this coming week, is the Jehovah's Witness uh, memorial. Yes, uh, their attendance at that, and I believe that most of their weekly meetings is usually about twice their actual membership numbers are. Attendance is about a third of our membership numbers or, or less. Our, the Seventh-day Adventists were approaching 18 million last October. I'm sure that they've surpassed it since that time. Uh, they count, uh, I believe, active uh, uh, adult members. I don't know exactly what their cutoff age is, actually, but uh, uh, adult baptized. And they remove individuals who are inactive after a period of time if they don't return, and so that those are also active. Okay, that's interesting. Also, I read two missionary letters every week from missionary granddaughters. They don't focus on their dinner appointments, and they do so much contacting, I worry about that they're going to contact somebody on the street that isn't a safe person to be talking to. That's great. Give them a hug for me. (laughs) Yes? You had one slide up there, or you did um, of the number of proselyting hours per convert. I wonder if it would be interesting to track statistics for some of the newer methods of proselyting. I know our missionaries now have iPads. When I go on Facebook, I see like 9 out of 10 posts has to do something with the church, very because of the friends that I have. But I'm sure a lot of people are being exposed to the church by the method, the newer methods of the church. 
Yeah, they're very exciting, and especially social media. And you have, especially with Facebook, you can target particular locations with like um, like Book of Mormon ads or something like that, and that could be instrumental in opening new cities to missionary work if that technology is appropriately harnessed by mission leaders. So, I know we get behind a lot of doors without even knocking on doors, though. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, in the green shirt. I, I want to go back to the uh, lowering of the missionary age to eighteen, and we got an increase of number of missionaries, but not a commensurate increase in number of baptisms. But one of the things I rarely hear talked about about that, and if, if I'm not understanding something, let me in on it. Isn't that just a bubble? Because uh, in the increase of missionaries, because we had a whole bunch of new missionaries come in on 18. So what we essentially ended up with is a two-year program with three years worth of missionaries, and as they move through, then all of a sudden, instead of having our 60,000 missionaries to give a 30,000 for thing, you know, that are 19 and 20, and another 30,000 who are 20, so... And, and that's correct. Initially, you have a double cohort, and I, I want to go back to raising the bar that was not the only reason for the decline in the missionary force. There was also a demographic blip that the church hit at that point when, due to declining birth rates, there were fewer young men arriving at, a missionary, at, at uh, the mission age. And so that was at least as significant, if not more significant, in the decreased number of missionaries as the, the increased standard. But you're exactly right. With the decrease of the missionary age to 18, you have two dynamics. One is you've got two co cohorts of missionaries. That is, you've got those who normally would have gone at 19, plus those going in at 18, or, or the young women going at 19 and 20. And the other side of that is, in a year or in two years, they're not going to go. They're, you're not going to hit, you know, they're not going to enter the missionary force at 19 because they're already there at 18, and, and for women, 19 and 21. Uh, it does increase the missionary number somewhat because there are some individuals who go on a mission at 18 who wouldn't be able to or who wouldn't otherwise because it can be difficult to interrupt a full-time college career and especially in some other countries this this was actually pioneered internationally where it's very hard in some countries to get a deferral from missionary service and and many foreign universities are not as understanding if you want to go and take a break from your studies for two years so it, but you're right we're going to see some plateauing and decline we're also going to see more sisters out there. A lot more sisters. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's too early to tell what's going to happen with the missionary numbers, but there has been a substantial increase, in, especially in some countries, the number of members serving missionaries. Like the Philippines recently has become self-sufficient, I believe for the first time, the number of members serving missions equal the number of missionaries assigned to the Philippines. Considering with your statistics, like to grow a stake, you need... One in ten members needs to be a Melchizedek priesthood who pays tithes. So you might have an increase of num like a, a lot of people attending, but they're probably mostly women and children and or men that don't come often enough. Because does that make sense? Like you might have members, yeah, a lot of, um, but not priesthood. Maybe we're not focusing where we should and focus on the family because that would be real growth. Is to baptize more families, like families be missionaries. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a, a big problem in, in a lot of countries where, um, and I believe it was about 40%, and Elder Oaks said in 2006, I believe it was, that women and children, or um, children and youth under age 15 accounted for 40% of all convert baptisms. But it's a dynamic where 
trying to fix it, the, the cure can be worse than the disease. Uh, for anybody who's leaving the Law of the Harvest books are free, you're welcome to grab your copy. But, you know, I, I was in a mission where you know, they were very concerned about not baptizing too many women and, and this kind of thing. And across all faiths, you see increased religiosity among women. Uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, about two-thirds of their proselytizers are women. And, you know, where there are women, there are also men. There are going to be... Uh, you know, women grow up, they they get married, they have friends, and so if you say don't teach women, what always happens is your your number of baptisms plummets, and you do not get an, a commensurate increase in the number of men. I certainly believe in approaches that should uh, you know focus on you know families and adults, and you know I always focused on on contacting men, but in spite of that, there was just some a somewhat greater receptivity of, of women, and and then. The other dynamic is once they're in the church, if you look at LDS statistics, there's not a big imbalance between men and women. It's about 53% female, 47% male. But once you're baptized, there's a big differential in activity. That is, the men, you know, go back to drinking, smoking, whatever, or just fall away for whatever reason. Women just tend to be more religious, and that's that's been known in all societies of the world for at least, you know, 500 years. <laughs> you know, I know there's a ton of questions that you'd all like to ask, but I do like to keep somewhat to a schedule because I know some people have to leave. So what we're going to do is is close up, and uh, afterwards I'm sure that Dave and Matt, David and Matt will be happy to answer individual questions. Before we close, I do you have any particular information or data that would be California-specific since we're kind of interested here? Is the church growing less rapidly in California than other places, more rapidly? And has, it, has there been any difference in the last uh, four or five years since Prop 8 that you can tell? So the church in California um, was one of the only states where membership regularly declined, but it wasn't by very much. Um, the church reached a high of 770,000 members, I believe it was in 2003 or so. And then it declined to about 755,000. Um, and it's steadily increased since then. And the statistics that just came out a few days ago for California, I was looking at actually just before I came today, um, and it's 780,000, which is a new high. So that seems to suggest that there's less um, members moving elsewhere from California, which has been responsible for previous declines, like in the early 90s, uh, which is encouraging. Um, and we're also seeing um, an increase in congregations again, although it, it's still less than what it used to be 10 years ago. Okay, thanks. This really has been interesting. And once again, thanks so much. For You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you. Thank you.